Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. All right, it's Thursday at 4.20 p.m. Eastern. That means it's time for Office Hours, Arroya's weekly session for cultivators to hear from the experts and talk to each other about what they're seeing with their grows. My name is Keisha, and I'm co-moderating today with my good friend, Mandy. How you doing, Mandy? Hey, Keisha. It's another week and another session. Super psyched to be here for episode 44. Hey, did you guys know we're also live over on YouTube right now? I'll be watching for your questions over there. Uh, be sure you're also following us on Instagram and TikTok for the latest content to help you cultivate your way to success. But back to business, we got the questions in on Instagram uh, this week, so I'm going to pass it back to Keisha. Thank you, Mandy. So if you're live with us here, you have a question, be sure to type it in the chat at any time. And if your question gets picked, we'll either have you unmute yourself or I'll ask for you. Um, definitely drop your email address in the chat too if you want to be entered into our swag raffle. Seth, how you doing today? Good, Keisha. How about yourself? Good, riding solo, huh? Yeah, yeah. All right, well, we got some questions. Are you ready for the first one? Yeah, throw them at me. Awesome, okay, this is a really good one. This was a write-in we got. Opportunity for a little overview here. So this person wrote in, are water activity and water content always relative to each other? I.e., does AW increase, decrease, and water uh, WC percent increase, decrease, or can AW increase as WC decreases and vice versa? Yeah, so they pretty much go hand in hand, you know, as water content increases, so does water activity. So they definitely don't have an inverse relationship, just roughly parallel. We're just looking at two different ways to measure, you know, the amount of water in there. One, we're looking at, you know, by weight, the amount of water we have. The other, we're looking at the amount of energy required to pull that out. Um, hold on a second. I think we have some mic issues. Can you guys hear me just fine? Okay, good. Um. So, yeah, I mean, where water activity comes in is, you know, when we've got a variety of different consistencies among our product, um, a bunch of different parameters we're looking at that kind of groups all of it into, okay, well, can it mold or not? Is it going to spoil? So, and we know that that, you know, that's something that's been defined experimentally over the years. We know there's a range. So we're establishing a water activity level for obviously different pathogens, different things that grow on our product and even if we're talking about jerky, the idea is we're looking for that point, you know, where nothing that we don't want can grow on the product. It can't spoil. And also we're maximizing the amount of water we're leaving in there because it's something we sell by weight. So we don't want to just, you know, give grams up to the air. And then for uh, the customer, when it really hits, I mean, part of that too is ensuring that when your product goes in the jar, it's exactly the way you want it to be. You know, if you've got a less than optimal packaging area, or let's say you are, you know, wholesaling it off, hopefully whatever processor you're sending it to is taking water activity readings right up to packaging to make sure that they're not, you know, that company that gets known for selling dry weed or selling it, you know, not fully cured yet or, you know, on and on. And that's another part too, not just, you know, quantity, but really ensuring quality. We can use water activity at different points in the drying and curing process to make sure that we're in the right water content range for that curing activity to actually happen. You know, and I think for cultivators, it's something in the industry that depending on how your company's set up, um, 
sometimes that's right out of your hands. You know, you've got a post-production department that takes care of all that, but it's something we always should care about. You know, if you're a cultivator, you want your product to be represented a certain way. You don't want it to hit the, hit the shelf and be something that you would consider to be inferior that you wouldn't smoke. So I think it's really important for user end quality. And, you know, even if let's say, uh, cultivation, your, your duty ends once it's in the dry room, again, you really want that representation because going down the line, I mean, part of your skill as a cultivator is going to be able to produce this good product, regardless of what facility you're in. Right. So it's not in anyone's interest to put out light, uh, over dried, under dried, anything but premium product. That's right. It's about the longevity of your business altogether. Yeah. Great. Thank you for that overview. Um, awesome. I'm going to move on to the next uh, Instagram question. Just a reminder to, to everybody who's on with us live, type your question in the chat so we can get answers from Seth. All right. Lucky wrote in a question. Um, what are your thoughts on dosing a wedding agent into your irrigation system to rehydrate compromised rock wool? Any thoughts on that? Uh, you know, I personally haven't tried it, but I do have some concerns about how that, uh, wedding agent would be delivered via drippers. I don't know if you would quite get, you know, the even dispersion that you'd want compared to like a dunk soak. And, you know, I think there is possibility you could use that wedding agent to help mitigate some of the dry pockets, but I can't guarantee as to how that's going to, uh, or can't guarantee what that's going to do in respect to your nutrients. And then also I can't guarantee that it's going to work. You know, we're, we're fighting cohesive forces in there or lack of cohesive forces between the water, a wetting agent, you know, can really help with that. But at the scale we're talking about, which is very, very small. I mean, a, a strand of fiber inside a rock wool is just minuscule. So we're talking about water contact on a basically microscopic level. And then those little lack of the tiny bits of non-contact on a microscopic level become a macroscopic bubble or dry spot in there. So the wetting agent may help. Um, I wouldn't ever make that a part of my program that I want to lean on though. Could be a good remediation, but I, like I said, personally, I haven't tried it. I wouldn't guarantee that it's going to work that well. Excellent. Great considerations for Lucky to think about. Cool. Thank you for your question, Lucky. Mandy, we got something in over on YouTube. Oh yeah, it's popping over there on YouTube. Um, so Dr. J303 wrote in, um, my runoff at pH is coming out at 3.9. I've been hand watering the whole time and not much runoff so far. What should I do and what range should my plants be at? I'm in three gallon pots of cocoa perlite. Yeah. So you want to be feeding between a five, six and a six O. Uh, usually closer to six oh. Um, you know, you didn't you didn't really mention what your feed uh, PEC or pH were, but ideally you'd want your runoff to come in just a few points below where you watered in, or a point or two above is okay too. But we don't want to see any massive swings in there. You know, if we're going in at a five nine and you come out at a five seven or five eight, perfect. If we're looking at you know over a whole point difference, so we go in at a five nine and we're coming out at a four nine or a three nine. Well, what we're looking at is a uh, ionic imbalance in the block. So we've got the wrong ratio of nutrients in there, not only for the plant, but that's pulling our pH down, which has the side effect of restricting nutrient uptake. So when we have a low pH situation, you might end up chasing your tail and thinking like, I've got a nitrogen deficiency, I've got a magnesium deficiency, when really you just have a bottleneck in the plant's ability to uptake some of those elements. 
Um, 3.9 is definitely a spot where I would be a little bit worried. Uh, it sounds like you're probably potentially not feeding enough and the lack of runoff is not restoring that ionic balance inside the media. So we're looking at a situation where we probably need to push a little more runoff and then, you know, on your next run, pay more attention to those pH numbers. And especially if you're running, you know, drain to waste and we're looking at it, that's, that's part of why pushing runoff even to check those pH numbers is a good practice because as the plant is pulling out, you know, when we're talking about ionic balance and there, we've got cations and anions, cations have a negative charge. Anions have a positive charge as the plants pull out most of the anions, that solution becomes more positively charged, which is a lower pH. And, uh, that's what we want to avoid. So, you know, <laughs> kind of short story long there. Um, probably run a little more runoff. You might need to feed at a higher uh, EC and then really make sure you're paying attention to your input pH, uh, depending on your water quality, where you're at and what specific fertilizer you're using. Uh, sometimes it can be tricky to maintain a pH, pH in your reservoir too. You know, you might mix it one day and realize, Hey, I need to go check twice a day, at least on my reservoir, drop a probe in and see what my pH is. Because a lot of times, you know, as we're sitting there, pH will tend to rise or fall depending on what you've put in the water. If we've got an acidic solution, we've got a lot of hydrogen ions in there, for instance, that hydrogen can gas off. So therefore our pH is going to be, or our solutions can become less positive. That pH is going to slowly creep up throughout the day. So definitely make sure you got a lot of consistency. Sometimes just because you mix a tank and if you wanted to leave it for a couple days, that probably could be a big source of that low pH. Um, not guaranteed, but again, it's a dynamic system and we always want to check on it and make sure it's doing okay. And also, you know, when we're talking about irrigation, as far as that goes, even between your tank and your emitters, you know, something you always want to do when you're out there in the garden is get not only your runoff EC and pH, but also your feed EC and pH at the dripper. If you've got some design problems with your irrigation system or some malfunctioning equipment and you think you're feeding at a 3.0, but you're actually feeding at a 1.5 or a 1.8, or, you know, let's say we've got some digitally controlled injectors that are plugging up and we don't have a redundant notification system. The only way you're going to know is to go take that sample and test it. So definitely just keep up on, uh, on your SOPs, I guess, follow the instructions and, <laughs> you know, don't. Don't let up on it. If you want to bake yeah. a really good cake, you got to follow every step in between and not take shortcuts. It's all about consistency, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. J, you'll have to let us know if you have any follow-up questions. Uh, but I believe we have some questions coming in in the chats. Keisha. Thank you, Mandy. Awesome. Yes, Michael posted a great question here. I'll go ahead and read it, Michael. And if there's anything you want to add, feel free to unmute yourself. Uh, but Michael wrote in, how do you feel about flood tables for clones? Uh, for clones, definitely um, can be a little difficult. I've certainly seen it. Uh, if you're using flood tables, you're probably, I mean, you can use domes, I suppose, with those. Um, overall, for cloning, though, not typically my favorite. I think they're a great option when you get into veg and you've already got rooted clones. Let's say you uh, have your Delta 10s that you drop on the slabs. That's a great option. You can put a lot of Delta 10s on one flood table, have a flood and drain set up and not mess with all your spaghetti lines. Um, some would argue that there are some cons to having your, your solution wicked up rather than dripped on from the top. I would agree. That's why, generally speaking, I don't really advocate for flood and drain setups on a flowering basis. You know, if we were going in with 
obviously slabs that would not be very efficient um, or the Hugo's the six by six by six. You'd have to have a really deep tray to be able to flood that effectively. And we'd be using a lot of water um, for clones. I think it's really tough just because when you've got so many different clones in one system, you know, if you've got 2000 clones on the same ebb and flow system, there's a few things you're going to watch out for. One obviously is overwatering those clones. Some of them are going to be ready to water after just like, you know, four or five days. Some might not need much water at all going all the way through. So, you, you know, that's kind of where that cultivators touch, picking that tray up or like Jason, I always talk about this, get a scale, you know, weigh your whole empty clone setup, get a weight on approximately what you think those clones weigh and, uh, get a wet weight and figure out, okay, I have X amount of water in my little uh, rock wool slab. Uh, the other thing that you might want to, you know, avoid with that is basically the same problem we have with any flood and drain or deep water culture system. Um, we have a bunch of plants sharing the same media essentially now that we're circulating that nutrient solution around. So that means any kind of infection, bacteria, any kind of pathogen that gets into that solution can now effectively spread to every other plant in the room. So that's something to be aware of. And then, you know, the other side of it is uh, nutrient management becomes much more of a chore because we're recycling this water. And that means like when we have flood and drain, we're also pulling all of that runoff back in too. So, you know, once depends on what nutrient you're running, how big your plants are, everything else. But typically about once a week, you're switching out, you know, all of or half of your total nutrient solution just to try to restore that cation anion balance because your pH, the pH in that solution, if the plants are feeding is going to go down. So we've got to correct that every day, but I can only put in so much pH up product before I hit a point where you're like, yes, I have my pH correct and I'm putting PPMs in, but it's not the fertilizer going in that I need anymore. You know, the, the solution's depleted. So I think it's possible to definitely to do it, but I don't think, uh, it definitely leaves yourself open to a pathogen attack and it's a little bit risky. I would say it's on the surface. It seems like it's going to save you time just because you can irrigate all those at once easy. But I think realistically on the back end, the potential for it to not be precise enough for your different varieties. And then, you know, even when we talk about moms, you've got different levels of mom health. I can have two moms, one's three months old and one's one month old. And if that three month old mom is really root bound, it's been overwatered its whole life. It's just not in good shape. I can't treat that. Let's say 50 cuts the same as I could off of the other 50 cuts. I got off of the other mom. That's much healthier. They're going to root at different rates. Um, you know, and at that point I should be able to say, Hey, I'm going to throw that old one away, but uh, all growers live with, you know, space, space limitations. Uh, we all have only so many resources to put in any one part of the growth. So that happens sometimes, you know, sometimes we have to get those cuts and we don't always have the most optimal mom. Amazing. Thank you for that, Seth. We've got a couple of comments here in the chat. Big Sci-Fi, I don't know if you want to unmute yourself and kind of speak to what you posted here. Let's see. Definitely want to share some uh, resources here. So you wrote awesome clarification on the pH question. Yeah. Oh, uh, you're still uh, muted. There we go. So yes, in episode 35, uh, about 35 minutes 
in. Um, uh, Seth mentioned that, you know, as cations were being used, as plants were using the nutrients, anions were being left behind, which would then raise the pH. Yeah, that's that's incorrect. <laughs> you called me. Yeah, yeah. no, it's so that dude, it's like, that inverse. It's the uh, it's the negative log thing, right? Lower means higher. Yes. I always trip myself up on that. Exactly. Uh, so dude, I trust on. your word so much that I had you had me questioning my own knowledge, man. So I'm like, <laughs> no, that means you're learning though. when you when you pick that stuff out. You know, um, right. I'll do that myself with VPD and RH sometimes too, because I'm so used it to is. thinking of the cup as a percentage full, not you know. Right. The opposite. What's the empty part with VPD? How much suction do we have? <laughs> so right. awesome. So that was all I was asking, man. Thanks a bunch. No worries. Yeah, Thank appreciate you. your comment. Yeah, love. I love the back and forth. Michael also posted a follow up here. Michael, I don't know if you want to unmute yourself, but I'll read it. Domes over the trays on the tables, drain to waste feeds, hypochlorous acid in the nutrient mix, labor hour limitations. Ha ha. <laughs> gotcha. I mean, I think that's totally possible then, especially with the drain to waste setup and running hypochlorous. Um, I think unfortunately you're just never going to get away from having someone even at that point, go in and look at your clones every day and hit the irrigate button and make sure you're not floating them too much. You know, um, one other thing, Mikey, that a few people I know are trying out. That's uh, interesting. I don't know if you want to do it. <laughs> They're running arrow cloners to get root initials. And then when you've got, you know, almost micro root initials, basically just little bumps of callus on there. That's when you stick them. So food for thought, there's uh, some interesting tech out there that's coming to light, but typically trays, domes, hand watering is like the most effective. There it is. Thank you so much. Uh, yes, Michael, thank you so much for your excellent question. All right, I'm going to keep it moving on. I got another write-in, a reminder to everybody who's on with us live, post your question in the chat. That is your best chance to get answers from Seth. All right, Michael Reyna wrote in um, and he, he's got some data he's seeing uh, from his Solus. So could use some mm. guidance. Cool. I've noticed that when I water three gallon pot with cocoa, I don't get runoff until the Solus reads 90% water content. Should I still treat the drybacks at 20 to 25%, 70, 75% WC? Or let them dry back to 45 to 50% water content, which would be a 40 to 45% dry back. Thanks. Uh, yeah, a few things to unpack here, I guess. Um, I don't know if you're in a round or square pot or a bag. The, all those things have some factors there. The bag's obviously the easiest to get a good reading on. When we're talking about bigger media, typically to get an accurate reading, we're also scooting it up. So if you have like a narrower, taller pot, we might be looking at using a different setting than where you'd stick that into a smaller pot, like let's say a two gallon OT bag. So that's definitely something to think about. Um, as far as your drybacks go though, you know, being that you're in cocoa, you actually have like quite a bit of freedom. So I would absolutely go for that 45% dryback. You know, you're not going to damage the integrity of that media the same way you would rock wool pushing those higher drybacks. The biggest thing to watch out for though, and I think, something you'll have to just work into your day is, you know, massive EC swings as a result. So using your Solus, what we want to do is try to capture, Hey, what were we looking at uh, right after our P1s hit? So 15 minutes after P1 stops should be done with runoff. Water should have moved around in the media through capillary action to where it's going to be. Let's see what our EC is looking like at that wettest point. There's our lowest point for the day. Then let's go back and right before P1s start, the next day, get that reading and try to make that a habit, both, you know, 
it'll be middle of your day when P1s are done. And then right before you go home or right when you get there, probably in the morning before they hit, but we can look at that range and it's when that range becomes too large that we start to see, you know, that classic tip burn lockout symptoms, et cetera. So basically when you don't have 20, 24, seven time series data, we've got to pick strategic points to measure and find, you know, where we need to be at those points. And then also, you know, if we go, okay, um, we were at a four at our wettest and a 20 at our driest. Well, we clearly are over drying that for the amount of salt that we have in there. That's too big of a range for the plant. So we need to either back off on the dry back or push a little more runoff and bring that EC down. Probably a little of both. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Michael, thank you so much for submitting your question. If you want some follow-up, send us a DM and we'll, we'll cover it in another episode. Um, Bilbo just posted a question in the chat. Bilbo, you want to unmute yourself and speak to it? Sure. Hey. Hey, Bilbo. So, hey, man. You, you, you brought up something that uh, spurred a whole bunch of what I think is correlation um, when you started mentioning the Aero Cloner, I used to use the uh, Dewey Mister in an Aero Cloner, and I noticed uh, what you would describe as rapid callousing. Uh, I did struggle at that age and stage to uh, maintain it. I think those you know best practices weren't necessarily always front and center. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm hearing and seeing, and I, I posed another secondary question um, about you know using things like calcium carbonate, maybe some gypsum and potentially adding that into the air cloner to maybe induce some very vigorous calluses that would then erupt into a, a massive root system and start a plant off. Now, I don't know if that's just hearsay or I'm piecing together parts of other conversations, but I, I want to see if we can get you to expand a little bit more on this air cloner concept of, uh, getting our starts started. Gotcha. So, uh, typically like calcium carbonate and gypsum, I probably wouldn't run those through my aero cloner unless I knew I had some kind of massive mystery nozzle on there just because, uh, gypsum is kind of hard to get to dissolve in water, but there could be something there for sure. Um, as far as the aero cloner callus tech goes, um, people I work with that are doing it, basically the way it works is you're in there for a few days is all. And once you see those tiny root initials form, and you're using, by the way, you know, a light nutrient solution potentially with some oxen in it if you really want to kick it into overdrive. But once those root initials are like one millimeter, two millimeters long, I mean, we're just talking about those bumps on the stem. That's when you're going to go ahead and stick it into the rock wool cube. And what they're, the reason they're doing that is, and I, I totally understand for them, they're getting easier performance, especially in terms of labor and everything, running the aero cloner just because they have a high success rate with it and it's worked for them for years. So they're sticking with that, but you know, trying to go into rock wool or cocoa. I mean, I'm sure if you've used, it sounds like Bobo, you've used zero cloner a bit. I mean, you end up with these massive root systems that are kind of hard to transplant if you leave them in there too long. Yeah. You know, unruly almost. Yeah. Well, and also the root system, you know, when we grow two and a half, three feet of hydroponic roots, I mean, start looking at them, really, those roots actually do tend to grow a little bit differently when they're in, you know, completely water. The arrow roots are a little bit different than the deep water, but I have noticed, you know, if you're pulling apart a cocoa block or whatever, your roots are a lot more fuzzy when you're in actual media 
versus a liquid medium. So I think uh, growing those big root structures in the aero cloner, completely unnecessary. We want to take advantage of that quick root initial formation. But I think the plant actually spends a lot of time on further root development, redevelopment once you put it back into the soil or not soil, but cocoa, rock wool, some sort of media. Bilbo, that, did that answer your question? Anything else you want to add? Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for submitting it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, keep glad you're good to see you this week. Let us know if you have anything else you want to ask about. Um, we got in a question over on YouTube, I think, right, Mandy? Yeah, we totally did. Um, Diane wrote in, um, if I dry back cocoa too much, did I lose percentage from the full capacity or is that only happening in rock wool cubes? Typically, you're only going to see that happen in rock wool cubes. Um, it is not impossible to have it happen temporarily in cocoa. I've certainly seen it where parts of the pot will dry out and become hydrophobic, similar to when it's compressed. But that being said, there's there's a trick. It's just called submerging that pot in some nutrient solutions. So what I like to do is just take a container. You can use a Tupperware tote, a clone tray, whatever. But when you've got that, basically, you just need to go soak that cocoa pot for a, not a terribly extended period of time, but, you know, 10 plus minutes and basically fill it up and let it stop bubbling. Let the water really penetrate there rather than dripping it on top. Sometimes if we overdry the cocoa, let's say we hit like 15 percent because of the way gravity works. Now the top of the pot is the driest spot. Water comes down the dripper, hits that dry surface and then just beads off the edge. So sometimes you've got to do that little bit of a mechanical reset, but no, cocoa doesn't have that same limitation that rock wool does in terms of developing hydrophobic pockets on the inside. Awesome. Super succinct. Um, yeah, Diane, I think you're on the call with us. Um, uh, he responded, but not an easy clone system. I'm in cubes and working fine. I don't know about a misting system. Yeah, I think, that, I think you're right on there, Diane. Like uh, the gypsum and calcium definitely can help during cloning. Uh, I just would personally, I mean, it, it's the same reason why I don't play with running a whole lot of different organics at all in my irrigation system. Um, and that's because many of those products are over 99% talcum powder. So similar to gypsum and those particles are not fine enough to go through your emitters. So I, and personally, I haven't played with, you know, aeroponic systems outside of the turbo cloner cloner, but, uh, I don't like, you know, when I'm talking about Mr. Valves and stuff, I don't like putting anything too chunky through there, you know, or even, you know, even running nutrient solution through there, you do end up having to clean them between runs, soak them in vinegar or some other acid to get that salt crust to break up. So it's, it's more of a mechanical limitation. Awesome. Thanks, Diane, for your questions. Uh, he said, never heard of it. Um, I don't know if you want to expand upon that a little bit more. Um, sorry if I'm, uh, never heard, uh, if you want to add some context, Diane, uh, but yeah, let us know if you have any follow-ups. Bilbo, uh, did you want to ask your question or we can ask for you? Uh, it's okay. Sorry, I got cut off early there. Uh, um, I understand that to be the challenge, uh, having had retrofit, having to have retrofit uh, aerotypical cloners in the past. And then years ago, I came into the knowledge of this product called the Dewey Mister. The Dewey Mister is just using air uh, through a small device so there's no moving parts there is no effective misting and it's 
it was, I think, initially conceptualized around the concept of uh, brewing a uh, brewing like in, in compost teas and whatnot. But I used it successfully in aero cloner. It definitely. <laughs> I'm now scrambling to storage to go and find the components to try it out again. <laughs> I'll have to look into that. That's interesting. Yeah. Less yeah, moving do parts. We, is... Do we miss her? Yeah. That sounds pretty Florida. sweet. Yeah. That's i uh, I'm going to have um, to look into that. Yeah. Cool. And I, I'm sorry again, I missed what the last part of what you said earlier, but I'll just recap with the recording. Okay, cool. All right, keeping it moving here. So many good questions come in. Oh, we got another question from Diane here. Yes, we're happy to ask Seth this question here. Can you ask Seth if three gallons per hour sprinklers are too much for three gallon pots in cocoa? Uh, I, I mean, you're definitely pushing the far side of what you need for sure. Uh, in a three and a half gallon pot, typically I would run either a one or two gallon per hour emitter with a splitter on it. Um, Three gallons, you can get shots on pretty quickly with a three-gallon per hour emitter. And with your three-gallon pot, you're probably just fine. Um, really, it's just going to come down to that, you know, the logistics of how long you want to be able to take for, if you need a 5% shot, is that going to take you one minutes or five minutes? That's pretty much the biggest difference there. With the three-gallon pot, you're pretty well padded. If we're talking about uh, six by six by six, Rockwool cubes or a one gallon pot, then you might be blasting it a little hard with the three gallons. It might be really tough to have a seven second irrigation or something like that and have it work nicely. Great question, Diane. Um, uh, Michael just posted here. I really like the one three one over three GPH emitters for everything three gallon down. I mean, Love. I was yeah. just going to say one thing I'll bring up too. Part of why I like running the bigger emitters with the bigger pots is uh, right now, if you're flowering in three gallon pots, my guess is, um, you know, we, we're pretty far into this crop steering thing now. A lot of, a lot of facilities have gone on to the smaller media size trying to get down. Uh, I like the orifice size on the one, two and three gallon net of FIM emitters. They don't seem to plug up quite as often. And then when I'm running at a bigger commercial scale, with a one or a two gallon or even a three gallon, I got one emitter per plant, not two. So it just simplifies the whole process a little bit. But Mikey, I agree. Generally speaking, I love a third gallon per hour, a half gallon per hour, two emitters per plant as a baseline setup. Sharing the resources. So good. Excellent. All right. I'm going to move on to a question that was written in on YouTube. So this came in actually before the broadcast. Um, Peter posted this. They want to know, in order to keep room and LS temps up with LEDs, especially in the lower section section under canopy, air intake got switched from floor level to above canopy, hence under the ceiling, but that interfered with the air outtake. I don't want air to move in and immediately get sucked out again. So I was wondering if I can lower outtake ducting. Can I just switch in and outtake positions? Would there be something wrong with that configuration if I can achieve the right temps with less cooling and heating? Thanks. Does that make sense to you, Seth? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, typically with intake and outtake ducting, we're looking at a few things. You know, we want to have good cross flow across the room. So we don't want the air to come in and just swirl around one side, come in and right out the ceiling, right? We want to go all the way across the room, ideally. So that's something to consider. Um, usually with our exhaust vents, we're going to try to pull that out of the upper corner of the room. You want them up high. That way we're actually effectively pulling that above lamp heat out of the room. 
we're getting an actual gradient rather than pulling from just one point in the gradient and leaving dead air and heat up above. So you can certainly switch them, you can play around, but those are a few of the main principles you want to look at. We want total room circulation, and you're right, we don't want that air to go in and go out immediately. <laughs> we want to take advantage of that, right? Um, and then beyond that, you know, how does your circulation system in there play into that? Is that helping move the air around positively? Do you just have a bunch of oscillating fans that are kind of all batting at each other and just stirring up the outer few feet of the room? Or do we have like lift fans, um, HVAC socks? How far have you gone with really getting that fresh air distributed around the room? Um, I think last week, Jason and I brought this up, but the, uh, the duct socks are amazing. You know, if you're having air distribution problems in your room and you're worried about where your intake is versus your exhaust, with like those duct socks, I mean, you can have your intake and your exhaust on the same wall. You're going to duct your intake all the way to the back of the room and that air is going to come back forward. So there's, there's a few options there. Um, the easiest way to figure it out is get in your room and start feeling how the fans blow. And then obviously check and see, you know, are you able to hold those temperatures or not? Great advice. Uh, thank you so much. I think uh, we got something over on YouTube, right, Mandy? Got me over there. Yep, we did actually. Um, so Vivid Farms wrote in, do you recommend to continue the same P2 schedule as daytime or should I allow more of a dry back between my P2s during the dark period? Thank you. And um, is this a follow-up? Uh, I'm going to go ahead and ask this too. We're in Hugo Blocks and we're having to continue P2s late into the dark period, day 37. Gotcha. Your plants are way too big for your pots. That's, that's what's going on. Anytime you have a, a nighttime feeding, that's what we'd call a P3. Um, that's not ideal. That means you've got way too little volume of water for that plant to hold overnight. And, you know, remember when the plant lights off, although we continue getting dry back, that's environmental transpiration and evaporation. That's not transpiration as a result of respiration. So the plant's not actually using nearly as much water at night. That's why we see that line, that slope taper off a bit. But, um, when you really overgrow it, you're going to have to have those, those overnight waterings. So that my best advice there would be to up your pot size. Basically, if you're running transplanting straight into the Hugos, probably switch it up to a four by four by four on top of a slab, or, you know, some people love running the Hugos on top of the Unislabs or the GR forties, but basically you need more volume if you want to be able to run any kind of generative strategy there. Um, for cannabis producers in general, if you're going to grow a plant over three feet tall, don't buy Hugos. They're just not big enough. And, oh. and the same would be true if you're, you know, you're running like, let's say a three liter cocoa pot, you know, we, we can only get so much water in there. And that's one of the driving factors. We, if we're going to steer the car or the tractor, in this case, we've got to have a gas tank. And if you don't have a big enough gas tank, you're just not going to get very far without refueling. Wow. Have you ever thought about your substrate size like that? That's amazing. Um, yeah. So I think uh, that was it for YouTube for now. Uh, back over to you, Keisha. Thank you, Mandy. Excellent. Yes. Um, Diane posted another question here. He wants to know, did CO2 of 1400 ppm will have a negative effect on my plants? Did I necessarily have to take it out from the room? Thoughts on that? Uh, no, actually. I mean, if you were, if you wanted to run 11 or 1200 PPFD of light, you would in fact need 1400 PPM of CO2. 
we don't typically see CO2 toxicity in plants and uh, pretty much until we're hitting levels that you would be getting a headache at inside of your, you know, that are dangerous for people. Um, so no, I'm not necessary to back off. That being said, if we're talking about the last two weeks of flower or so, once we've stopped bulking on size and we're just ripening, theoretically the plants don't need as much CO2. However, that doesn't mean to pull it out completely. If you're going to go from 1400 PPM down to four, when you cut it, you know, I'd say just pull it back to equal your PPFD during ripening, if anything. So if you're cranking your lights from 1200 down to 800, pull it back to 800, save a little money. But you know, there's, there's three big things. Plants really love CO2, water, and light. That's their main building blocks. Everything else is to accomplish what those three things are trying to build. And, uh, when we limit on any of those, we're possibly leaving something on the table. And that being said, those are three of the easiest things to provide for the plant. You know, CO2, we're opening a valve lights. We're plugging a light into the wall and hitting the switch and, uh, water. Well, the liquid parts just going on all the nutrients we want to put in the water. Maybe that's where it gets a little harder, but there's no reason to skimp to your skimp on what you're giving your plants for those three fundamental uh, pillars, I guess. Awesome, Seth. And actually, Diane just clarified. He's talking about nighttime. Um, so I don't know if you want to add based on Honestly, uh, unless you're constantly venting out and you need to spend money replenishing that CO2 all night, it should be fine. You shouldn't, your plants shouldn't be using as much of it at night at all. So easy enough to maintain. And uh, Mikey, thank you so much for your comment as well. Mikey posted, as long as you have the PPF to match, no problem at all. My rooms are frequently between 12 to 1500 PPM. Yep. Thanks, Mikey. And yeah, to clarify, my rule of thumb is always PPFD plus 200 or 250, you know, and I know there's probably plenty out there that would say, you know, just equal PPFD. I just like to play it on the safe side because uh, CO2 is not very expensive currently. That obviously could change someday. Awesome. Great question, um, Diane. Thank you so much for submitting a great conversation and great answers, Seth. All right. I'm going to keep it moving through. We have a few more questions from Instagram. This was kind of an interesting one. Um, we get questions like this from time to time. So Seth, I'd love your tech on it. Chris uh, Bagdas Bagdasarian is looking for feeding charts for 10 to 10 over 15% dry back. Any thoughts on that? Because I know we, we often get these kinds of questions and it's kind of like strain dependent, right? Yeah, it's a little strain dependent. And then, you know, we have to look at plant size versus pot size. So like if we're looking at a feeding chart, for instance, and trying to build one, there unfortunately isn't, there's a, not a uniform template that's going to work in every situation. Right. So if we're talking about, uh, just an average vegetative schedule, or let's start with an average, average generative, we'll go through the order of flower here. That's characterized by a bigger shot. Now that shot size. So the number of shots that we're going to take to reach, uh, that 15 to 25% dryback to refill, replenish there, that's going to change depending on what media we're in. Um, and the other side of that too, if we're talking about a 10 or a 15% dryback program, if we're basing it all on just that dryback number, that's kind of the wrong way to start in all of this. That 10 to 15% or even up to 25% dryback is indicative that we have proper VPD in the room, proper light, proper heat, everything environmentally and proper humidity. Everything environmentally is looking good. That's reflected in our dryback. 
Now, if I suddenly go say, Hey, everything is within reason. I'm only getting a 15% dryback. My buddy on Instagram is posting 40% drybacks. I want to get that. Okay. Well, I'm in a rock wool slab. He's in uh, one gallon cocoa pots. That's something you can do in one gallon cocoa pots. Something you can't do in that rock wool scenario. Now you're still going to get great product out of both. We could grow them side by side and you probably couldn't tell the difference once it got to the bag. But in, with that rock wool, we're going to be irrigating it more. We're not going to let it dry down as far just because we can't. We'll ruin the, the integrity of that media to hold the water, kill our yield. So basically um, with our generative steer, we're looking at that two hour irrigation window and the biggest shots we can put on. So we minimize that shot frequency. So a lot of times that's characterized by three or four shots, about 30 minutes apart, two hours after lights are on and then a 22 hour dry back. And then once we hit vegetative steering, we're going to look at doubling the amount of shots there. We're going to go to six to 10, even 12 in the P1, anywhere from one to 3% of our volumetric water content, trying to maximize the number of irrigations we're putting on in P1, waiting a little bit to get a dry back and then continuing with some P2s in the afternoon that are also in that one to 3% range. Now, if you have low VPD, if you have low PPFD, if you have low temperature, all those things are going to be affected. We're not going to see that big dryback. So we've got to look at like, what is your facility doing and how can we optimize that? Unfortunately, I wish, I wish there was a blanket that said, I wish I could tell you water at 10 times, 15 minutes apart. And that's works for every bit of weed, but unfortunately it's not that simple. That's so great, Seth. So yeah, just a reminder that like uh, the whole, the entire environment is what contributes to the the dryback situation. You don't want to start specifically with a dryback goal, right? Exactly. You know, and a, a big thing growers are running into, you know, especially we've got, depending on how long you've been at this, if you first spec'd out your grow space five, six years ago, you're probably low on your, your dehumidity capacity. It was that long ago, you might've switched from HIDs to LEDs. So now you're extra low on your DHU capacity. Unfortunately, if you can't get your VPD up, there's no other tricks to help you crop steer. If you're just, if it's too humid in there and you can't get the dryback, we can't really do much period. If we can only get an 8% dryback. I mean, and that's, that's aside from looking at mold and a bunch of other issues that can happen when your environment's not, you know, on point, but that's one thing I know that's really frustrating for growers is we'll run into these limitations that are, you know, hard, literally hardwired into the facility. So the, the intuition is always to like, what can I do to not have to change, solve the hardest problem or the most expensive one. And unfortunately that's just the reality in a lot of these spots. It's when you're, you know, like if we're talking about having to hit P threes overnight with the Hugo's like we like we were earlier, there's no strategy I can tell you that's going to help you accomplish what you want to in those Hugos. You know, there's a fundamental flaw with uh, what's going on there and we got to correct that. Otherwise we're, we're going <laughs> to, you know, approach the same problem 10 different ways without with 10 different non solutions when we, you know, have a simple problem that just has an unfortunately expensive solution. That's right. It's about that big picture thinking. 
Awesome. Love that question. Thank you so much for your answers. Just a reminder, folks, anybody who's on with us live, we are coming. We got about, what, just over 15 minutes left in the show. So be sure to type your question in the chat so we can get um, Seth's take on it. Um, But Mikey posted uh, just now, he wrote, for larger plants in generative stacking, how do you feel about a longer P1 period versus a shorter P1 with a second saturation event at the end of the day, assuming that both result in a healthy dryback and end start? of day water content. Gotcha. So when we do have a larger plant, you know, I mean, that's the other side of this. I can, I can harsh on people for having big plants and small pots all day, but the reality is rarely is that, uh, on purpose, right? Generally speaking, uh, we're putting these in there. I mean, sometimes people will initially say, Oh, I'm going to save some money, smaller media, but usually after one or two grows, you kind of are aware that there's a certain size you're going for. And a lot of times, stuff happens, you know, due to scheduling or whatever, they end up vegging for four more days than, you know, we plan for a multitude of reasons. The plants can get bigger. Um, the main thing about it is we're still looking in that generative stacking for a short P one period. But when we're looking at it and saying, okay, I'm going to over dry, you know, by 10% tomorrow morning, if I can't get a maintenance shot in the afternoon, what we want to do is make sure our morning P one is as short as possible to hit field capacity then we're going to ride it out till about two hours before lights off and add a maintenance shot, at least the amount that we want to correct in the morning. And the reason for that, I guess, is then we're still preserving that bigger dry bag. Now, sometimes we'll go back to the Hugos. I can spot those on a graph <laughs> immediately every time they come up because typically um, you will be bringing it, have to bring it back up to field capacity is how much, you know, that's the amount you're going to need to correct. It won't be a simple five or 8% shot. You'll be like, well, by two hours before lights off, we're already at a 20% dry back. <laughs> we need to get that back up so that we're not totally dry in the morning. So like, yeah, I, I feel fine with that second day irrigation, but I also know that anytime I go outside of that two hour irrigation window and anytime I add more events, then I'm putting less and less generative stress on the plant. You know, I'll always use the old example of a three and a half gallon pot or a five gallon pot with a three and a half to four foot tall plant in it. You watered that thing once every other day, maybe every third in the beginning. And that bud probably came out amazing. You know, uh, it just never had the yield that we we're looking for because we had a small plant and a big pot and we always had to wait for these wait for days to get these drybacks. But side effect, we're producing super crystally high quality, small buds. <laughs> That's kind of the, the result at the end of the day. Michael posted here with three to five harvests a week, scheduling gets weird. Oh, I can yeah. imagine. <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> yep. And that's, that's the other thing too, right? Like, uh, I think a lot of us got into cannabis cultivation for a lot of the right reasons and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the same passions. Like you start growing, you like it. The plants are fun. Interacting with plants is fun. Watching them grow is great. But the reality is like with Mike over there, Hey, they've got a sizable facility. Three to five harvests a week is a lot of work. And, uh, it's important to make sure you find ways to do it where people don't burn out. You know, I think that's one of the hardest challenges about all this is most of us entered this out of, like I said, passion for the plant, passion for the craft. And at the end of the day, it's, uh, you got to find some passion for, you know, small to medium, but size business management <laughs> and humans. I think I, I had a customer 
uh, about a month ago. He said, man, I, I didn't think I, I didn't take this job to manage people's emotions, but now that I've ironed out most of my growing challenges, that's what's left here is just keeping this place alive and making sure everyone here is happy enough to make sure we get all the things done that we need to do. Because, you know, once you start to hit size, you got 20, 30, 40, 50 plus employees. That's, that's a big ball to keep rolling. That's a lot more than just caring about the plants. Mikey uh, added here uh, that he was a medical bed tender and a patient to patient grower long before corporate. You got some stories, Mikey. <laughs> yes, you've been in it. <laughs> Thank you for your service. Um, awesome. Okay, we got a question here from Big Sci-Fi. He told me to go ahead and ask for him. So can you speak on how much of a savings on water and nutrient saving you can expect with precision watering, crop steering, compared to a highly amended soilless soil grow? And thoughts on that? Um, you know, I would have to sit down and do some math, but typically speaking, you, the uh, better yield that you get out of it's really going to take over any kind of savings you have. But when we're looking at, you know, a soil, you know, a living soil grow for better or worse words, um, we're looking at something that's fairly unregulated. So we're spending a lot of money typically. And, and that's the other thing too. It depends. Are you someone that is manufacturing, you know, living soil systems? Are you selling the compost? Um, do you have that available? Because in the marketplace right now, if you can produce some of your old, your own organic amendments and inputs, you do stand a chance. Um, if you have to go buy all those, if you're buying compost, um, AKA cow poop from someone else to mix in, you might need to get into a situation where you, uh, you've got some cows and other inputs that you have access to for that. Um, as far as water savings though, massive amounts with precision irrigation. I mean, what this allows us to do is run a higher EC, run it safer and not rely on just hitting runoff every day in some attempt to maintain a consistent condition in the root zone. That's money saving. And at this point, resource saving, isn't it? Because water is getting a little scarce in some parts of the country too. So. Oh, absolutely. Kish. You know, before I uh, started working here, actually, that was one of the main things I saw about this technology is I was familiar with meter groups work and, you know, agro agronomic research and stuff. I went, wow, they're applying this to weed. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, even back then I could see like, Hey, we've got a pretty wasteful industry in the state it's in. And what a lot of, you know, just looking at the marketplace back then, there weren't that many tools available, you know, they're very limited in scope. And then the higher end of that selection, you know, it's hard, you know, it's hard to go to a legitimate scientific instrument company and ask for tools for your weed. <laughs> Not a lot of them really responded to all of that. You had to do the old tomatoes or you know, <laughs> that, that whole thing. So, uh, I think we're hitting an, uh, a point in time where you'll be able to see quite a big difference between people who are using sensor equipment and what their water usage is like versus just reactionarily making decisions and not sticking to a program, for, you know, basically. It's about those SOPs. Mikey wrote here, initial cost for living soil is really high. And then Saifa added, got it. I'm in New Mexico and water is precious here. So precision watering seems to be a variable, very viable option. Yeah. I, yeah. I think it's, it's going to be necessary for longevity in this industry. You know, 
I mean, we can even look at uh, just other greenhouse crops in general where that wasn't built into their initial, (laughs) their initial plan when they're trying to build a facility. And suddenly, you know, I mean, we can look all over California, they're pulling down different types of orchards. Almonds are extremely water hungry. And so is cannabis, unfortunately, but, uh, yeah, you've, you've got a plan for that, especially if you're in an area where water is either expensive or, you know, not attainable. I definitely have talked to growers in the past who don't have, you know, they're remote and don't have access to a well or access to power. So at a certain point, if you're using, you know, diesel to haul water to your grow site and you're using diesel to haul diesel to your grow site and power, eventually your overhead just gets to be completely unreasonable. And if you're not making money, why are are you in this business? You know, I shouldn't say that because there's a lot of passion out there, but every business has to at least be able to maintain itself, right? Like nothing lasts if it's just a total loss the whole time. And I can guarantee you it's going to be quite a while before the government's willing to bail out any weed growers, you know, facts on that one. Yeah. It's about sustainability on a, on a broader level for your business and for our environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and that's the thing, business and business and environmental sustainability are not at all mutually exclusive. I think that is a total myth out there. That's just been propagated by people who are scared to do extra work and try to meet in the middle there. Love that. Yeah. It's, uh, a couple of our attendees are bonding over the lack of water in their respective <laughs> locations. So it's a sad reality, but I'm glad it's good to talk about. Um, we have a few more minutes here. I want to bring this question your way, Seth, because I don't think you were on the episode that we talked about this, but um, Drunk Nomad 40 Ounce asked about how to make your plant leaves pray or what causes them to. I wanted to just shout out that we covered that just a couple episodes ago. So um, we're going to post to it uh, here in the chat and then uh, also in our blog post. But anything you want to add to that discussion, Seth? Yeah. So, you know, uh, I think it was, it was last week or the week before we, it's Jason like and I were talking about trigger pressure, you know, uh-huh. what's, in, what's involved with that? Basically how stiff those plant cell walls are based on, you know, the amount of water they have inside and the amount of water potential outside of the plant. That being said, um, there again, that praying response is that is a reaction to good environmental conditions. So basically what's going on there is as the plant pulls water in water, we have a certain amount of water inside the cells versus the cell wall. Now the cell wall is hard, the cell membrane soft. So basically the cell actually lives inside this little shell that cell swells and shrinks inside of there. The, re- the relationship between the amount of water inside the cell and the amount of suction coming from the environment is what causes parts of that to become more or less stiff. So if you've got high VPD in the morning, sunlight, and a reasonable temperature, you're going to increase the turgor pressure, which is basically just how stiff those cell walls are because they have access to water now that it's being pulled up. And also when you increase that negative pressure on the plant, that's, you know, you're, you're pulling it up the straw. <laughs> the harder you suck on the straw, the more water comes up, right? So that's the, that's the effect we're seeing there. Um, the big thing, I guess it's important with plants praying is if your plants aren't doing it, you need more dehues. You need to dry it out in there. Um, and then also, you know, that's not, that's totally skipping over the, the idea that maybe you also have uh, russet mites, fusarium, pythium, 
a whole range of diseases that can also cause poor plant performance. You know, that's don't, don't ever discount that in this, you know, that's, I know it's real easy to get hung up on, Hey, my plants look sick. It's nutrition or it's definitely this or that it's always holistic. I've definitely watched people just chase this problem, that problem. And then someone else comes in that hasn't been in their facility before and says, have you guys noticed these mites? And they go like, Oh, Oh, russet bites. Uh, all righty. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's just because they had, you know, been generally been having success with something for so long. And then a variable got kicked their way that they, you know, number one, had never experienced before. And number two, they, a lot of times had a bias where they had a problem in the past that was solved through nutrition or irrigation, but now this isn't the same problem. So, uh, yeah, just remembering to step back and try to look at everything as holistically as possible. You know, if you, if you're having a problem and you're really struggling to solve it, there's a good chance you're just, you're kind of stuck in a box and you've got to step outside of it, you know, and really remember, like, it's been difficult. There's a lot of research that's been done over the years scientifically to come up with like why we stay inside of these parameters and values that all came from experimentation and application. We're not going to solve anything overnight when it comes to plant health. And then, you know, remembering that the farther you are into your run, the less of a difference, anything you do, any change you make is going to do. So as farmers, we've just always got to be patient and go, well, this one doesn't look the way I want it to. I'm going to try my best, but I'm going to look back and try to correct this on the next crop. That's where I'm going to be able to make my big difference. Wonderful. Thank you for that. All right. So we got um, just a couple more questions here. This was from Over Get High. They asked, Arroyo Solis Terrace 12 works great for home grow, right? Absolutely. <laughs> if you've got uh, a little home grow going, go ahead. You know, my favorite thing to do with the Terra or the uh, Solis setup is if I've got, let's say, 12 plants in there. I'll, uh, I'll check a few of them right when I hydrate. If it's all the same strain, typically I'll use that installation tool, actually install it in situ. That way I can just go in there, push the button, get my reading and then walk out. Not spending time stabbing a plant every day if I've got 12 of the same plant in there. And, you know, uh, typically one in 80 to 120 plants is about a good sensor density that our customers use. So if you're a home grower and you got that solace on one in 12, that's pretty good coverage. It's just up to you to go in there. And like I said, before your P1s shoot off and after your P1s shoot off, get that water content in EC. Awesome. Thank you for that. You heard it, home growers. I didn't use it for my home grow. I just had a couple of plants, but we'll see what happens next year. <laughs> All right, Mandy, got a ride in over there. Yeah, I have a quick one to ask Seth. Um, so this week we got asked a question. Um, Hi, do you have any distributors in Europe for the Solus 12? Um, they might mean the Terrace 12, but um, Solus is what they wrote. Um, and does the Solus 12 work on the European power network at all? Do you have any advice for them? I don't know if we have a specific European distributor. You could certainly uh, send our sales or customer support an email. We can look into a little deeper on how to do that. I'm not in sales specifically. So I'm not, you know, super familiar with their distribution networks. I do know it is a goal to bring Oliver Roya over to Europe eventually. 
Um, however, right now, I mean, there were a few challenges at first between different radio rules in between the U.S. and and the EU. Those we've definitely been able to overcome hasn't been a big issue. Now, I think our biggest, our next hurdle, and this also unfortunately affects you home growers out there, is just sheer volume. You know, uh, it's scaling up to meet demand and then dealing with the, the supply chain shortages. That's That's been a huge challenge to us, just like anyone else in manufacturing over the last few years, unfortunately. Uh, but we're, we're going to get there. <laughs> we know there's demand. And, uh, you know, Europe also has a, is a cool opportunity just because there's already so much greenhouse production and, you know, precision ag going on there in terms of horticulture in general. So we're, we're very excited to make it over there, especially as the cannabis market over there seems to be maturing. And, uh, you know, we're, we're getting away from the old Dutch style laws in places and moving more towards full legalization. Awesome. Well, that's good to hear. Really exciting stuff on, in the works for our Europeans and everyone beyond the U.S. Um, yeah, that's it. That's it for YouTube. Um, and the questions on my end, Keisha, back over to you. Appreciate you, Mandy. Thank you for co-moderating with me. I think we're about to wrap it up. Seth, great job doing this solo. I do want to address real quickly one write-in that we got, uh, SMC Cali 2. They were looking for some tutorials. So just want to make sure everybody knows, check out our, our resource page. We have a lot there. Check out our YouTube. All of our videos are there. And then, um, you know, if you don't see something on a specific topic or you want us to cover something on Office Hours, the show's for you. Write to us and let us know. Um, we do this every Thursday. So the, and the best way to get answers is just to come on live and ask the experts directly. Um, you can also book a demo. Uh, we'd be happy to get uh, one of our professionals out there and, and show you how Arroyo can be used to improve your cultivation production process. But then, you know, feel free to send us a, a message in the chat. Shoot us an email at support.arroyo at metergroup.com or send us a DM over Instagram with any topics, any questions that you have. We want to hear from you. We record every session. We're going to email everyone in attendance a link to the video from today's conversation. It'll also be on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And if you find these conversations use, useful, please do spread the word. Thank you, everybody, to uh, this week who joined us. We love these, these live conversations. We live for it every week, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroyo.io.